What's up, gang? Um, this is Nick Flanagan Weekly. You're listening to Nick Flanagan. I am Nick. I'm in a room I don't always record the intro or outro in, but that's what's happening. There's a dog scrabbling about behind me, bag of rice in front of me, and this is your life. It's my life, actually, but I'm presenting it to you. Thank you for allowing me to present it. Today's guest is wonderful. His name is Mike Wallace, and he is a very uh, bright, um, good guy, but also a party thrower. Someone who, in the early 2000s, really put on shows in Toronto, um, just DJ nights, that were relaxed, filled with good dancing, and always in exciting locations. They were called Hot Times, Scheme, Evil Genius, him and Rob Judge's... um, wrote did did put on these shows at this place called 56 kensington and were part of a really fun movement and uh, he also happens to be the spouse partner of elizabeth mann who has been on the show a lot and a writer and a musician he's had quite the life and we really only touch on a little bit of it uh in this because they're just we're friends and we get to talking and that's what happens so we had a great conversation and i hope you enjoy it and also Check out Mike's music at dreamshatterer.bandcamp.com. And uh, he wrote an article for New York Magazine. We will be linking to that in the show notes. Enjoy my talk with Mike Wallace. Mike talk with Mike Wallace. All right. That should do it. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, that's better. So you got some internet where people shouldn't be using the internet while you're using the internet for often. Well, you know, we like to keep it old school, man. Are you on dial-up? Hi. No, 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 no. It's, it's not dial-up. It's the regular thing. Wi-Fi. Do you miss dial-up? No, no. I have no nostalgia for the internet at all. So I don't miss what it used to be. I have, yeah, no. Not at all. <laughs> See, I'm a few years younger than you. And uh, I feel like the internet is like nostalgic for me. Like, I think once the chat rooms and message boards all kind of wound up becoming one lump, whether it was Twitter or Discord or Reddit, that makes, it's not the same as back in the day when you go on the comedy message board or even a news group. But that's not your life. You were already rocking and rolling by the time <laughs> that was happening. Yeah. Well, how, how'd you do that? That sounded great. <laughs> how, how, did, how did I do what? Did you get yeah, like a, true. a weird... That's very true. Uh, <laughs> yeah, man. I remember a great Chloe quote where she talked about being the last generation that didn't have the internet. And I feel... You know, I'm only three months younger than her. I'm definitely part of that generation. <laughs> so you didn't have the internet. What was your version of the internet? What makes you nostalgic, Mike Wallace? Oh, television. Obviously, television is the thing that, uh, that was the media of my youth. You know, I was part of that generation raised on television. And one of the things that I tell my kids all the time today is uh, talking about how panicked people were about television back then about screen time back when the screen was a giant appliance in your living room that didn't move right and how much more powerful it is today that you carry it around in your pocket Mm -hmm. Uh, you know i'm a school teacher now and that's the biggest difference between us and them is that they have a tv in their pocket and it's a tv that does exactly what they want when they want so teaching against that is uh an uphill battle, let's say for sure. Have you shown them like the effect of it? Have you shown them like Lawnmower Man or Hackers or The Net? These kinds of things that are, you know, warnings about '90s warnings about the internet. The Matrix, Johnny. Well, oh, The Matrix, yeah, of course, yeah. No, I didn't. We did watch The Matrix, and I will say I was. I was uh, impressed. I knew I always liked it. I thought it was amazing, but it has aged very well. And I loved how it's such a well-constructed movie. Man. Well, today's my birthday, so maybe I'll make uh, Dang, someone Nick. watch it with me tonight. Happy birthday, man. Thank you. How old is it? Well. What is this? It's very 
hard to say, but I'm I'm 40 years old. What? Congrats, yeah. man. Congrats. That's amazing. Who knew? Well, presumably how? you did. <laughs> yes, I did. That's how I was able to tell you because I know. I know. Um, I guess this is the part where I backtrack and I say, uh, 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 you are a man. You live in New York. You're married to a uh, former or, or my frequent returning guest, Elizabeth Mann. That's right. You have kids together. And we've, yep. we've spent a lot of time together. And uh, Yeah, no doubt. You know, we know each other from way back in the day in Toronto. Oh, and gosh. So many days. Do you think, I always try to kind of forget where we really met. I guess it was when you were doing dance nights, but just the very beginning of that, you know, like the dance parties, for me, the very beginning of that, the, the dance parties yeah. that were at, this is when Toronto didn't have special, uh, that many entertainment options. This was when, uh, I guess in the early 90s, there were actually a bunch of clubs and bars people would kind of congregate at, but those sort of became different. And then in the late 90s, you were just finding kind of weird venues and throwing dance nights there. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, talk about nostalgia. That Flyers make me nostalgic, Nick. That's what I get. That's yeah. what I get, Weepy. You know, talking about, you know, promoting back in the day where you'd have to physically hand people pieces of paper and, uh, you know, in, literally invite them to your party hundreds at a time in order to make sure that there was anybody at your party. Yeah, walk around with tape, you know, spend a day doing that, and then a week later maybe spend another day doing that, go to different areas. Oh, God, the postering I did, man. We're talking like hundreds of thousands of posters over the years, you know, just me mm. and wheat paste, you know. Uh, never tape, though. That was too unsightly. I always hated the way tape looked, and it didn't yeah. work very well either. No, you were very professional. Wheat paste. Wall, wallpaper paste, that's right, that's right, you know. I never really learned how to do that, and I'm sure that's why I didn't become an impersonal <laughs> partying. You know, but but yeah, you you did that, and uh, and w there were posters and and flyers, and you'd go. This is my experience with postering. At least you'd go. You'd yeah. have this kind of route of places that you knew would probably put up a poster. So postering became a bit of a social thing, and uh, and then invariably you'd stay at one place for too long, and then you'd have to start postering again the next day because you didn't finish. That would do what I'd do. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you were probably methodical. Well, yeah. For us, postering was go out late at night when the cops weren't around, when there was nobody on the streets. You'd start mm -hmm. at midnight and walk, you know, all the way down Queen Street from, oh gosh, university to, it just kept going further and further west as the years went on. You do Dundas, you do college, you do Spadina, you know. Like I said, when we were at the height of it, you were putting up like 2,000 posters, man. That takes a lot of time. So you did uh, a, a party called, did you do Scheme? Was that you? That's right. That, that was me and Rob Judges. That was our first party. S-K-E-M-E. That's right. We named it after one of the kids in Style Wars. The oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. And he was always our favorite guy when we watched, we watched, the first time we watched that movie was on a 16 milli print we got out of the Toronto Reference Library. And we did a screening of that at Anea's, which was an old all night uh, pool hall at Queen and Bathurst. Yeah, it had and, a feeling like it was like a Hungarian restaurant. Years, a, bit, a few years later, it was a venue for punk shows actually. That's right, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's where we got the name Scheme, just because we thought he was a cool guy. And there's some, a lot of great scenes in the movie where his mom is giving him hell for being a graffiti writer. Uh, but that was that was our that was our university party when Rob and I were at U of T. You and, and Rob uh, judges the uh, person who DJed right. a lot with the artist and yes. music lover. And Rob, of course, has the coolest uh, had the coolest thing develop when he moved to Japan. Maybe it was even before, but where he was. Was he always a CD guy? I don't really remember him having messing with vinyl too. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, throughout, no, no, no. I mean, that, that's our particular moment of history that we were the guys, you know, uh, too late for records and too early for MP3s. We just in that 
perfect mid '90s sweet spot. And Rob, to this day, only DJs from CD CDs. Yeah, but what's yeah, so awesome players. about that? I mean, in that, fact, when we started, mm-hmm. go on. No, I mean, I was just gonna say uh, when I saw him when he moved back to Toronto, um, he was showing me his CDs, and he's really into these Japanese CDs. And oh quite, yeah, he's quite insisted that the Japanese release of CDs is the best one because. They're small uh, cases. They're very beautifully um, high quality, you know, uh, prints. And, and so they're compact, but they also look good, you know, which is totally... Yeah, they're amazing. The plastic cases were, to me, probably the death of CDs, as were the Thor. Exactly. Sort of the thick plastic ones that you'd put like a three disc thing in. Those are cool, but they would always get dented and stuff, you know? So damage. But maybe that's yeah, my own. Yeah, I, I, I agree 100%. Yeah, no, man. I, I, the packaging killed the CD. It had nothing to do with the audio technology itself. It had everything to do with the shitty jewel case. And as you say, the, the ones in Japan, they just look like little records. And, yeah. and they're, they're as beautiful and as collectible. And so when you see Rob's collection, it looks like a proper musician's collection rather than a bunch of yard sale garbage, which is what anybody else who has CDs looks like. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, do you find, uh, this is a side note, but in this uh, sort of confined period of time that we're in, you are in New York, which is Amy Goodman from Democracy Now! calls the epicenter of the coronavirus That's pandemic. And are you sort of going to comfortable nostalgia to sort of keep sane? Or is that something you kind of always were doing? Because like I was, I, I was saying I've been rewatching Oz, which isn't exactly comfortable, but it is somewhat nostalgic, the HBO show, and appropriate sure. to a prison-like environment. And uh, yeah, so are you doing that stuff with your kids? You're being like, hey, here's a, here's a documentary about Mike Tyson and Buster Douglas. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, all I would say to that is like that, that's a process that has been ongoing since I had children. So much of being a parent is re- reliving your own childhood. So that's a process that's always ongoing. But certainly in this time, we've spent a lot of time enjoying all the things we enjoyed. Uh, we just showed them the Blues Brothers, for instance. That was a big hit. Uh, I forgot right. how hilarious and kid appropriate is. It's a very sort of magic realist movie, you know, it's yeah. kind of goofy. Uh, and we, the other night we watched The Gods Must Be Crazy, which I hadn't seen since I was a kid, which is another super slapstick, uh, hilarious thing that little kids will really enjoy, but also has an amazing and prescient message about uh, society. That and ev- environmentalism too is in that movie right oh god yeah yeah no it's it's yeah for sure it's pretty deep uh it's the movie the first where 20 minutes yeah it's like 2001 the, the first 20 yeah minutes. yeah exactly it's kind of like uh it's kind of like coin Scotsy, but with uh Pratt falls it's hilarious i haven't it's seen great. that movie for years and years i loved it when i was a kid is it uh zimbabwe that movie or botswana Botswana, and uh, it's about, yeah. is it about Bushmen? Is that a, the right word? That's right, in the Kalahari. And they the Bushmen, find a Coke uh, bottle or a Pepsi bottle. Yes. It's a Pepsi bottle. Never a Pepsi. Coke. <sighs> yeah, it's a Coke bottle, of course. Uh, the, hoop, uh, the hoop skirt bottle, the greatest piece of consumer packaging ever made. Mm. Uh, it falls out of the sky, a pilot litters, and they find it and discover it is the hardest thing that they've ever encountered because they live in a world where there is no stone. So the hardest things they know are bone and wood. And they find this thing that can do all kinds of things that they've never been able to do, but it also means that they become jealous and envious and irritated and it completely disrupts life in the village and so one of them the eldest of the village it take takes it on a journey to throw it off the end of the earth and hilarity ensues i recommend it to everybody should watch it it's really good and it's not because i would imagine because it's a botswana and made film is it botswana and made like is it you know or is it yeah it's a south african movie yeah, okay. So because of that, and, and by, by a South African movie, do you mean like the Boers part of South Africa? Or 
Yeah, right. that's right. It's uh, the the version we watched was dubbed into English from Afrikaan. Yeah. But I guess what I mean is, does it have a racist vibe? That's really what I'm trying to get at. How like has it aged uh, in that way? You know, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, to the to the extent that I am qualified to make that judgment, I would say it, it, it's totally sensitive to that. And the Bushmen are the heroes of the piece. Yeah, that was the sense I got with the movie. That's my memory. People that come it. in for a critique are, yeah. There's a lot of movies I think. Oh that, yeah, absolutely. You know. Yeah. Um, like, is a movie like The Green Mile, say, more offensive than, say, uh, Song of the South, or is it just kind of the same thing, you know? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. I never watched The Green Mile. Uh, but, I'm, yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, just a couple of white guys figuring out what's racist. Right, yeah, that's yeah. what I like my podcast yeah. to be. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think that I've figured it out mostly by this point in my life. Uh, I, don't, I, I hope I don't have too much figuring left to do. Um, but uh, certainly we're always sensitive to it. And I would like to, as I say, I, re I would like to report that The Gods Must Be Crazy aged very well. And I would be happily show it to any third grade class you're willing to, right. uh, you're, you're going to encounter. And, yeah. uh, you know, we recently, in, in my nostalgia, we had have the luck of access to the Criterion channel. Uh, so we, I, we watched uh, The Harder They Come, starring Jimmy Clark. Ah, yeah. Of course, one of the great soundtracks of the 1970s, you know, is yeah, uh, yeah. The Harder They Come. So I think it's the 70s. It's like the early 70s or something. I don't think yeah, it's yeah. the 60s. 76, something like that. And the movie has... Uh, Again, it's it's similar to that. You can tell that it's not really messed with by uh, anybody external of Jamaica. So it has this, although I prefer the more kind of realistic stuff in the movie, which is just Jimmy Cliff watching Toots and the Maytals record or, or right. uh, Jimmy Cliff, uh, you know, just talking to people. That's the part of the movie that I prefer. There is this plot that sort of like almost copies... The song Johnny Too Bad, like it's just about right. a guy who goes down. Uh, you've probably seen, have you seen the movie? Years ago, yeah. Me, yeah, me I mean, too. I'm familiar with it, but it's been a while. I saw it years ago and uh, the, and, and um, I wanted to see how it held up. And, it was a robbery, right? Uh, kind of. He just becomes like kind of a bad dude, you know, and, and I didn't keep watching it as, as we went on. Yeah, yeah. It's just like one of those movies, you know, I kind of go in and out of like, and uh, but but it's definitely worth a watch, you know. And, and yes, yes. I don't think. Do you think people should be shamed for not finishing movies? Going like, okay, I get it. I can take a break now. No, I don't. Shame, God. Let's let's reserve <laughs> shame for things that are shameful. Uh, and let's be honest, man. Like everybody's attention span has been significantly eroded. That's just, just you know, like. You can't climb stairs like you used to if they cut off your legs, man. There's just no two ways about it. Uh, it's harder to watch a movie now. It's just how it is. So you're from so no, Don't feel shame in. Yes. Well, what, were you, what were you playing at, at Scheme, you know? Um, I remember when I would go, I never went to Scheme. I was just a little bit too young. But I immediately went to your uh, evil genius parties, which were after Scheme, and then and then hot times That's right. um most of yes. those were with rob right as your co well the timeline goes rob and i started scheme in 95 and did that till 97 when both of us moved away i moved to london england for three years and mm. rob moved to new york uh and then he got deported and came back to toronto in 98 uh, <clears throat> then him and dave gillespie did a party called school and then Rob moved to Japan for the first time. I returned to Toronto in 2000 and by myself started Evil Genius. And then when Rob returned in 2001, him and I teamed up and started doing Hot Times together. And then we stayed with Hot Times for a number of years. And then he took that and ran with it by himself and our friend Adam for a while. Uh, but yeah, man, like just so many parties in the day. Like that was... That was really how I spent my 20s in a big way, you know, 
Yeah, was, I'm, I always felt like that was my major contribution to the culture of my city. And uh, <laughs> I gave people well, I, something to do once a month on a Friday night. I loved it. And uh, it was it was nice for me because I didn't really fit into uh, um, exactly into like any scene. So when I went to this dance night where you could just dance and the eventual home that you guys settled into at 56 Kensington, which was this. Oh, amazing, well, yeah. I mean, just to tell people who are, who are listening about this place, 56 Kensington, I hope you had one in every city, but uh, it was a basement in the middle of Kensington market that you go down club 56. And uh, it was just mirrors everywhere. Um, so it looked a lot larger than it was. And I believe were the ceilings mirrored or am I crazy? I'm no, crazy. It, it was like a there were disco ball ceiling. Yeah. Yeah. There was a disco ball. There were fish tanks and yeah. sort of dim flickering neon. Um, yeah, it had a kind of... After hours. It had an after uh, hours feeling. Bangkok by night vibe run by a couple of Hungarian guys. Yeah, and yeah, it was... It totally, was it, totally. There was another yeah. place right up the street called, I'm sure you remember it, the Lions Club, where, you know, the Deadly, Deadly Snakes played. We used to play. And um, it had the same feel, like just this sort yes. of space where... Somehow it was encouraged to have these kinds of events, but it didn't quite feel right that it was yeah, yeah. these kind of events, which really added to the feel. Obviously, the fish tanks were fascinating and all the fluorescent, and you'd go down there and you'd party, and there were a lot of people in Toronto who did influential parties. I mean, it was like the early 2000s, and Rob Gordon and uh, Luca were doing this expensive oh, shit, yeah, which yeah. was basically a grime party, and then... Uh, there was Will Monroe who did a million part types of parties, most famously Vaseline. Of course, uh, but yeah. he did he did peroxide at, at uh, uh, fifty six, and that was kind of like death dance, you know, music. Which so it was just a great yeah, yeah, venue yeah. for that. But I remember having like a million very memorable things between all of those parties, uh, especially peroxide and, and especially Hot Times and Evil Genius, and it was just like. Uh, it was really a good party for me uh, to have no inhibitions at. You know, you were playing rap yes. and rock yes, yes, yes. and pop and uh, stuff that might have been considered guilty pleasures, but when it was all kind of put next to each other, it didn't really feel uh, you, you would appreciate it uh, in a different way. And I heard a lot of songs there for the first times, uh, or I heard a lot of songs, you know, for the first time, even yeah, though yeah, I yeah, physically yeah. heard them before. So course, I, yeah. I think the stamp that you put on a city uh, through a dance night is huge, but what's amazing is it's almost like unsung, you know, in a sense, I, I, which I think a lot of deep sort of sure. participation locally can wind up being unsung just because a lot of things have to come together for it. It certainly was at the time, not something that was getting, I mean, I think there was coverage for it, but it wasn't like, you know, people weren't showing up at hot times, you know, news people and being like, right here is the biggest dance party Toronto's ever seen. Not that right, it was. Right, right, but, but you know, it was like, yeah, yeah. it was, uh, it's something where uh, Denise Benson, this this writer, did that great book about of, the of of dance clubs and uh, parties in Toronto. I was started, honored to be included, in man. And, it was and they, so great. They included you in that, and and that was a great way of acknowledging uh, all the people who'd, who'd been involved. Many of whom did become magnates or famous on some level. You hear some names and. It's all about records were broken at these parties. And, and, and so, uh, and I don't mean Guinness records. I mean, you know, like they say, I, I tried to make that just smooth transition. Oh, a lot of records got broken at these parties. But, um, you know, just, just seeing you in that mix and um, really where Toronto is at with dance culture now, um, party nights, it's on the one hand so overwhelming that it feels normal and saturated and all this stuff but really it's an extension of like everything that's come before it i know you haven't lived in the city for quite some time but it, it's always nice to me um to see that even though i don't want to go because they're too late most of them even rob oh good he's really <laughs> of course yeah nice. yeah and i was like i actually haven't been able to make it 
uh, I think I went to the one that happened when you were in town, but normally I can't make it because I'm just like, got to go out. Oh, no. But you, you're a parent. You're a yeah, teacher, no, no, I think a writer. You still take the time to go out to dance nights and you yeah. DJ often at, uh, what's the name of the place in uh, New York? Uh, uh, Troost? Oh, my God. I got my spots, my Troost and Big Bar. And yeah, man. Yeah. Well, you know, I you're into it. You love it. You know, I've, it's funny. Today I walked past, uh, we were down in Coney Island just walking around. We walked past an old arcade and I got thinking about arcades and how the arcade when I was a little kid that's what got me into nightlife you know because yeah. it was that it was a dark room it was always nighttime in the arcade it was colored lights loud music there was a sort of seediness to the arcade it really was always nighttime that was like the most crazy thing you'd be out in the summer on this beautiful day exactly. walking down young street and then you'd go into the arcade and it's suddenly like not like going to a dungeon, but it almost does relate to in Star Wars, uh, the command centers for like the rebels oh, are yeah. always dark yeah, yeah. and there's like the screens yeah, yeah. and stuff, you know? Yeah. And you know, when I was a kid and I got, you know, I, I came of age, I came of age in that era, speaking of the nostalgia, and, and I loved it so much. I mean, way more than I loved video games per se, it was the atmosphere of the place and the, semi-illicit nature of it and when i when i think about why i ever got into nightlife at all that's where i would that's where i would mark the genesis you know and just the idea of staying up late you know when you're a kid and you want to know what the adults are doing and you have to go to bed you think well something's happening in this whole other half of the day that i want to take part in so no matter how, how old i am i i want some version of that and i will say i'm really glad that in New York City, there's a very big culture of being able to go out when you're old. Nobody shames you if you're past 40 and you want to go drink in a bar. You know, it's okay. Um, nobody's like, why aren't you at home in your like three bedroom with an above ground pool? Already, you, know, you know, when we were in like, New York, um, talk about not shaming people. We were in New York uh, when I saw you, of course, and we went to your yes. dance night. But we went to this very old bar that we were staying near called Rudy's, uh, free hot dogs, and <laughs> yes. uh, it's in Hell's Kitchen. And uh, it was Christmas time, and there was one of the FAO Schwartz like soldier guys <laughs> <laughs> just having a beer in his costume. <laughs> like That's 3 right. PM, I love it. PM. Exactly. And, 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 you know, it's one of those things that you would – if you saw it in Toronto, and this is something interesting in Toronto because it's a very self-fulfilling prophecy, you'd look at this guy and you go, oh, he's trying to get attention. He's not even someone who works at FAO Schwartz. It's someone who like dressed right. like a soldier and went for a beer. But there it's just like, oh, the soldier is having such a long day that he needs a beer. I get it <laughs> and I love it, you know. But I wish yeah, yeah, that he yeah. didn't have to work and was yeah, doing the soldiering yeah. out of love. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, uh, I, I think that, um, have you, do you feel like you saw things change over the course? So you probably moved out of Toronto in like 2003 or something? Six. 2006? Six. I was there to 2006, yeah. So you basically were Did there. Did it change? Yeah, uh, I mean, I mean, yeah, like uh, when you go back there, maybe just track it. We can say, what's your perception of? The city in the 80s, city in the 90s, and the city in 2006, and until 2006, and then when you come back now, you know, if that makes any sense. That's a lot of questions in one question. But you well, answer me. Uh, let me see if I can take it, take it apart. The first thing I'll say before I say anything else is, uh, although I've been away for some time, I... I'm a Torontonian to my core. I love the city. Always have, always will. Mm -hmm. That's how I identify 100%. Just put that out there. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I say to people when they ask me here, I mean, you talk about the 80s. You know, when I grew up there, I, I, what a fantastic place to grow up, man. I, I feel mm. beyond lucky to have been part of it and to have that be the venue of my childhood. Uh, I, I had a fantastic childhood, I like to think. And... Uh, being in Toronto was part of it. I mean, you know, talk about Kensington Market. I, I'll never forget the first time I saw it, you know. The first time I picked up a 
copy of Now Magazine and saw an ad for Shawnee's Recycled Clothing. I was like, what is recycled clothing? You know, and then taking the subway downtown and seeing this whole world of Kensington Market and being like, this is here, this is crazy. But also having that, you know, that Scarberian experience and being able to blend the two. Uh, I thought, you know, that was magic too. There were so many worlds available. Uh, you know, I never, I never felt bored. I never felt it was small. I always thought there was another place to go, another chapter to read. Um, you know, there always seemed like a lot of doors to open. And when I was there in the 90s coming up as a young man, the doors would open. All I had to do was knock. I mean, the, the great thing about it was that it was a big city that didn't quite know it was big yet. So you could do all kinds of things and nobody was there to tell you that it hadn't been done that way or that somebody mm -hmm. did it better 20 years ago, or you should have been here when Thurston Moore was hanging out with whoever. Mm -hmm. There was no nostalgia at all. Uh, one of the great, you know, that that's been a big change is now for a place that, that didn't exist when I was coming up at all. There was no past at all. It was like an ahistorical place. It was as if the city existed since yesterday, and that was it. Uh, you know, you couldn't, you, you didn't know what happened in the 70s. You didn't know what happened in the 40s. I mean, God, it was, so it was so fresh. It was, it was so exciting. And, you know, I think looking back now, I, I'm proud of myself that, you know, me and my friends and the people I knew and the people that I met, like yourself, I mean, I just felt like everybody was just, making the very most of it and now you know the the global profile of the city what's happened with you know drake and everything like that like it has been made the most of you know and now you start to see all kinds of little problems that 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 growth well uh, i mean with it, but. i mean we're gonna have such a crazy future now you know there's now that all of this has happened with the uh world basically coming to a standstill for a, a period of time it really makes me intrigued. This is a curveball, you know, like this is something, I mean, the whole thing that's happening is a curveball because it's everybody has been bitching and moaning. We've all been stressed out about the world and all the different things. As a parent, you know what kids are paranoid about and it's probably the environment the most, but I don't know, maybe you Big don't. time? Yeah, and, um, shootings i guess too you know but um it, it, it's like now in canada there's all of these uh, things that have been proven immediately that we don't have sufficient um means of helping the homeless you know that we don't have oh God. Mm, really that we don't have sufficient medical testing i mean that's something that's kind of lost in in the whole world uh because LA, uh, the us is just doing so much uh, uh, legwork in terms of taking the looking bad. But, you know, we don't have <laughs> testing going on right now in, in Toronto and Ontario. Sure. And um, I guess what I'm getting at is just that a lot of things like income suck supplements, income sucking, <laughs> income supplements, um, wage subsidies, um, making unemployment, you know, pay more, uh, even more medical coverage than we actually have. Like these are, uh, rent going, needing to go down, like, uh, because we're just seeing it. And, 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 you know, also, if you really want to get into it, the difficulties relating to population density, to creating a million condos where there were not, you know, and, and that's obviously true of New York as well, except it's always been set up for max, max sure. density. You know, it's just that their definition of max density just was one thing. And where Serrano was like, like you said, it was accidentally a big city. You felt like they weren't even aiming for density half the time. And it didn't feel dense when I was growing up. You know, it, it felt... No. Um, it, it, for the 80s and 90s, it really felt like an empty place, you know, which is... I think why a lot yes. of things were able to thrive and a lot of things were able to create themselves. Like an artist like Peaches, you know, could never have come from anywhere, but here just because of the aspect of a queer scene, the fact that she had already established herself as a solo performer, Meryl Nisker, you know, 
before making this persona up and then having a place like Will Monroe's Vaseline or other, uh, lots of other, lots of other avenues to go big. So, so, you know, that, and, and it was such a unique take on like rap and electro and all this weird stuff that it, it yeah, yeah. didn't fit in. And, and uh, uh, you know, that's something, like you said, when there's no past, you can kind of blunder into a lot of sounds and, and you can even hear that. It's always been interesting to me, the eighties hardcore revival uh, a lot. There is Amer- look, America was the epicenter uh, in a lot of ways. When you go through those two thousands bands, some of the best ones really were all done by the same people. Uh, Government Warning, uh, Direct Control, and um, all these other bands, which were this tight-knit group of guys from um, Virginia was a huge part of it. But then uh, Fucked Up and Career Suicide and, and you know, kind of the band I was in, um, it was 80s hardcore, but it was really informed by the weird influences that Toronto had from bands like Rocket from the Crypt or, you know, uh, completely different, you know, uh, Leather Uppers, Starkweather. Like, these were all bands that nobody really knew. And there was like, so even though we were like a hardcore band or a punk band, it's like we had this influence from during the time where like, bands like Zeke or the Datsuns, like all these weird kind of like that, like ACDC revival era, the American right, right. The Jesus lizard era, when that kind of sound was laughing hyenas, you know, um, touch and go records. So uh, that was absorbed by everybody. And it kind of, even though it fell into this eighties hardcore sound, it was kind of its own thing. And, I, you know, um, and since then, there's so many Toronto acts doing different stuff that it's almost like you don't even need to kind of talk about how it is its own thing because there's so many people from Jennifer Castle to, you know, the sort of countrified people doing stuff to uh, punk stuff to dance. Yeah. I don't know. Are you yeah, missing yeah. Are you missing it during the pandemic? I mean, do you feel like, oh, we're in New York, this is the greatest place to be right now? <laughs> no, <laughs> but at the same time, uh, you know, I haven't felt any more threatened, put it that way, although I live only a few miles away from Elmer's Hospital, for instance, uh, you know, it, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm in danger, especially here, uh, you know, so I, I didn't have any desire to flee and, and run home, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you won't it's about the people so you stay with your family yeah yeah you know but as far as uh, do i do i miss the health care i don't know i haven't been sick yet so no <laughs> you haven't been sick in the 14 years that you've lived in in new york well that, that's a lie that's a lie I, <laughs> I i you know if you've been here long enough everybody's got a terrible american hospital bill story so we've, we've come up with a few for sure uh and that is real you know i mean when just as you were talking about hardcore bands and all that stuff and the differences you know between a, the canadian take and an american I, you know yeah, what I miss is that there's just a lightness. There's a lightness in Canada that does not exist here. That Americans are very serious. Yeah, Americans are very serious. They're Indeed. very serious. America is very serious. The stakes are so high here, and the stakes are high from the very beginning. And everything they do is high stakes. So even when there's no there's no real irony in a way here because they never allow themselves the distance to say something doesn't matter because secretly they think it does uh, because it does. And if, if you don't succeed, you'll starve and suffer. And that's how they treat everybody here, you know, uh, in a way that, that they don't in Canada or Denmark or Norway, for instance. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think in Toronto, like in New York, it doesn't, you know, uh, this is something I've tread upon many times in the podcast, but you know, the, the LA thing, you really do feel that intent almost in every conversation. And it, because the intent is almost the floor of the conversation, you can like borderline have a normal conversation. And in New York, 
right. New York, uh, that's where I've had some of the freest kind of run-ins with strangers in my life. But you, in terms of just talking about whatever bonding, you know, in, almost immediately and not in a codependent way, but, uh, or maybe right. you're all, all just codependent to being in the city at that moment. But uh, I also remember very well going out with you one night and we had hung out with this guy and I was like, that guy's nice. And, and you were like, yeah, I'm never going to see him again in my life. But you know, that's how it is here. You have like one <laughs> night with everybody and it's fun. And then you just, nobody. No, I know. It's true. Yeah. I've met 10,000 people once. Uh, and mm. they're extremely friendly. They're, they, don't get me wrong. When I, when I say they're serious, I don't mean they're unfriendly or severe. I just mean that like they take everything very seriously. They well, put a lot of thought into it. They put a lot of effort into it. They, and it also they, means Americans following work, to, man. Yes, they work. Well, that's just hard. it. You know, I, I mean, for instance, one of my favorite things to do uh, in the summertime with the kids, we get in the car and we, we go look at like crazy roadside attractions, you know, like, you know, dinosaur land or whatever right. and invariably you go and see this thing and on the surface it seems ridiculous and silly and you know so whimsical but then you think about it for a second you're like the amount of work that goes into creating a stonehenge out of cadillacs the amount of work <laughs> that goes into like crafting a fiberglass t-rex that shoots lasers it's burning man. The labors of love it's burning yeah they take that's right that's to right take a exactly. man to make a metal man Set them on fire. Yeah, that's right. You know, and, and, and that, that kind of dynamism that exists here is, uh, yeah, it's, it's very exciting. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very inspiring. But at the same time, it can also be exhausting because you're just like, God, I don't know if I've got that much dynamism. Yeah, like, no, for you know, sure. I don't know if I'm going to do that shit. Well, like, being, I, I, feeling reca being recalcitrant in or you know like sort of not putting yourself out there instinctively partly because it feels like an intrusion or uh right. with the imposition is uh sort of in maybe the colonial countries oh, um the dominions yeah. mind state you know absolutely and, absolutely and, and uh americans don't have that. In fact, it's the opposite. And it, it, it's interesting seeing trends in the U.S. and, and how trends are followed almost uh, instinctively. And I think it has to do with the fact this works, this makes money, let's at least put it in this box so that even if it's a creative, never seen right. idea, it will be somewhat packaged in a way that people have seen, you know, and, and I, and I kind of think that's why, yeah. I, in my opinion, I'm not going to say there's so much good American culture right now, but I definitely think in the world of the press, there is, and in, in writing in general, I've seen this kind of tight girdle of a uh, writing system, you know, like what works in terms of gets clicks, what works in terms of an argument that, that people want to hear right. right now. You know, I think that it's basically taken away from, um, the individuality that is so important in writing. I, I think that, um, you know, it's I, now I'm going off on a thing, but I, I think that the l sort of absurd lightness of serious topics that I kind of viewed as humor uh, for a long time without realizing it came from an authentic place. And that was why I liked it was co-opted. And so now very superficial comments right. are viewed as humor or criticism. And because of that, we can very rarely get to the heart of the matter, you know, and uh, in, in North American stuff. And the fact is, if you're a freelance writer, you need to uh, really produce a lot. And it's very rare you would be handed a huge budget to do like say like a piece like Muhammad, uh, Muhammad Ali's match in Africa that Hunter Thompson covered you know and i'm not trying to say hunter thompson is like the top of the food chain but no the, no but the reason that he, he was an exciting writer at the time was because he was one of the only people who was there were only a few people doing that type of a certain type of adventure or journalism uh and there were sure. degrees within that 
you know, so, so he represented one degree and now it's like, I just feel like everything's the same, especially in writing, like, and Gawker got deep sixed. And I think that pretty much was the end of a certain type of journalism. I don't know. I'm babbling now, but. I agree. Well, I, I would just add to that and say, I think you're hundred percent right. And, you know, I blame it on two words, the internet. Uh, what, you know, when you, when you asked me at the beginning, do I miss dial-up? What I miss about the early internet was the idea that there was going to be a diversity of opinion and expression. And what we have found is that it's a conformity engine. Uh, yeah, in, I mean. In a, a heavy-duty way. And I see that, you know, in a very stark example, just in the children that I teach. The, you know, you go into a high school today and they all look the same. You know, mm -hmm. just the trope that that high schoolers will uh, splinter into various cliques and tribes and have all kinds of zany expressions and really uh, explore their individuality is an obsolete trope. Uh, now the conformity is, I mean, goddamn, man, it's like Orwellian. It's crazy. Uh, they, they, I, I'll be in a two thousand kid high school and there are no cliques that are visibly apparent. They are all wearing exactly the same thing. Uh, and they, it's it really, even though they have access to more information and media and culture than anybody ever, uh, the sheer scale of it is so daunting and overwhelming that the importance of the handful of curators that they pay attention to is so huge that they end up listening to the same three things. It's nuts, man. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I lament that big time. I think that's kind of something that's trickled up just because of the internet, you know, and and uh, to to adults as well. But but in terms of kids, oh, I mean, yeah. I, I will say that there's yeah. things that I I like a lot when I have you know have my rare chats with the the youth. Sometimes that's with your kids, but it's just like, first of all, they seem nicer than other generations. They they seem like. A lot of kids are, are, oh, they are. They sensitive are. to the needs of other no children, question. you know, and, and, no, and I no think question. that's quite, you know, maybe that has to do with the homogenous feeling, you know, it's, it's not like, I mean, part of why I didn't like high school was the idea of cliques, you know, because my whole thing was I got along with right. a lot of groups of people, you know, and, and I didn't want to be part of anything, you know, and I think that that's the truth of yeah, life. Yeah, yeah, no. I we aren't you. part of anything, but we can get yeah. along with everybody, you know? Like, we're just, uh, so, so there's that, and there's, yeah, yeah. you know, obviously uh, the bullying thing, the fact that that's been turned into um, such an issue is amazing. That being said, it feels like the response to bullying is a lot more emotionally pained than it's ever been, you know, because there's suicides over it uh, to an extent that we didn't once have. And, you know, um, and, and uh, it, it, it's really interesting too. like the existential threat of the kids in the 1960s of, of the Cold War and there might be a nuclear bomb has been replaced by the not existential threat of like the planets being weird. And also someone can shoot anyone at any time you know, in this country. So it's like those fears to me would be a lot more, into it, more, they're more real, you know, than, than the Russian thing, which was basically an attempt at the U S of, of controlling people's uh, via fear, you know, in, in a lot of ways and, and, you know, North America in general, but obviously in the West, uh, that was a thing. And now, you know, I think there's a lot of resistance. Uh, it was a real threat. I mean, <laughs> you know. I mean, it was a threat. I, I, I hear what you're it, saying. It, it, I, was, I just, it was one. It was the Cold one. War wasn't. It wasn't made up. It wasn't. No, it was very real. But I mean, the fact is, the actual threat to America was less after, say, the Bay of Pigs, because they were doing so much and the, the Russia was doing so much in other parts of the world. So in other words, when you got the Vietnam War going on, it's like, yeah, there might be a nuclear bomb dropped on America during it, but really it's like the nuclear war, or the Vietnam War is the Cold War, you know? So it's a, uh, a, a, in that moment. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I'm not a historian. Oh, yeah, man. sure. You're, yes. you're a learned guy. I'll, I'll, I'll grant you almost anything. 
what wishes do you want me to grant? Uh, yeah, no, I, I just, you know, I, I remember looking at my, my brother is uh, 11 years older than me. So he graduated high school in 1982. Mm-hmm. And in his yearbook, they had like, you know, sign of the times and the number one fear that people had was nuclear war. So it was, it was real. I mean, no, when no I was growing up, it was, it was still a, a, a huge worry. Plus it combined when I was growing up, and if it, 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 you know, AIDS too. Oh like, yeah. Yeah, for sure. The nuclear war of disease. Yeah. 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 And now we've got another uh, disease, Mike. You know, there's always something to keep you up at night when you're a little kid. That's for sure. Well, and uh, I don't envy the kids of today for what I know. My God. It's rough, but you know what? They're smart. So who knows? Yeah. And, uh, but you are a very good writer as well. The great thing about kids is that they, they adapt and improvise and make it happen. Yes. But you're also a very good writer. Well thought out. Can you hear me now? 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 Mike, Mike, Mike. I can. Yes. Great. Um, I did. But I've always appreciated when I've read, read you write stuff. And then when we spoke, uh, when we've talked about stuff, you're just a very thoughtful guy. And I just, uh, you mentioned you have something coming out in uh, New York Magazine and uh, maybe some of the well, other, thanks. talk about some of the other stuff you've written. You too, some of, oh, thank you. I mean, I, I think you're really good at Yeah, it. it went up on Friday, so everybody can check that out. Uh, what, what's it about? What's the nature of the article? I know you told me, but uh, you hear it from God's ears, it's about, God's uh, mouth. It's an article addressing the fear that uh, people, some people expressed of dying in a big city like this, uh, getting lost in the crowd. And uh, it kind of takes a a tongue in cheek approach to say, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to look forward to about dying in New York City, put it that way. Uh, Yeah, it was fun to write, man. And uh, I'm happy that it got up. We'll definitely link. So, yeah. We'll definitely link to that in the episode. District. It's in the cut. Everybody, go go look at the cut on nymag.com. Um, so yeah, man. Who are some of your favorite writers, or you know, people who've spoken to you that made you want to write? Oh gosh, uh, that made me want. Well, you know, the one that comes to mind. I, I read a Australian journalist, John Pilger. Uh, I got into him in my early twenties, and he is an investigative journalist uh, who did amazing work uh, in Vietnam, Indonesia, Beirut, you know, all the hot spots of the world over the last 40 years. And he was my introduction to social justice, the idea of social justice as, an, as a concept. Uh, and he never used the term or, or talked about it in those words. But when I discovered him around 24, 25, it really blew my mind open about what was possible with journalism. And uh, he's a guy that's been, you know, arrested and banned and done all kinds of things where you know that you're getting under the powers, uh, getting under their skin, which is always a good sign. So he's one that I would recommend to everybody. John Pilger, P-I-L-G-E-R. Yeah. And do you have some other things you're wanting to write about? I want to write about the uh, history of Looney Tunes uh, on T-shirts and stuff. <laughs> I think that would be cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, as I was, you know, to be honest, uh, that, that stuff I was talking about, the arcade, I think I'm going to work that into a pitch. I want to talk about, you know, I want to, I want to go back in memory lane and uh, talk about hanging out at the fun shop at Glen Watford Plaza up at Midland and Shepherd, and how oh my that God. early experience led me on the path to the dark side, you know? The, the arcade at Scarborough Town Center, I probably went to in like 1987 or 1988, and I couldn't believe how much I loved it. I was like, this is the coolest place. And uh, yeah, yeah. They, the, they were so dark, these arcades. And it would be weird that they would also be dark like in a mall. Like it feels it makes sense it's dark when you walk in from in the middle of the day off the street. Oh, but- yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, I'm yeah, obsessed yeah. with, uh, I mean, I really did love the video games so much because they just took me right out of the world and sometimes they were about superheroes and stuff I like. But the vibe of it, walking oh, up to that guy yeah. and giving him $5 and he gives you the $5 and quarters and Ooh. 
you know, the five dollars for the quarters. You felt like a king. You did, and we had the organ grinder, which was this birthday spot. Oh God, uh, yes. Near us, and I remember <clears throat> this giant organ. No um, pun intended. Yes, yeah, and uh, and they'd be playing this crazy organ music, and it would just be like it felt like an endless amount of video games, and that was where I had some birthdays, and it just was just too good. Okay, last question: What are you listening to? Right All now, right. what music is soothing your soul? Oh, well, as you know, Nick, because you were here uh, for it, uh, I'm on a blues kick for real these days. Uh, I've been yeah. on a blues kick for about six months now. And uh, yeah, man, uh, now I'm 45, and I'm finally, I'm finally able to be at a place where I've lived long enough to have felt some of the feelings expressed in the blues, and it's hitting me in an emotional space that uh, I never did before. You know, as a rock and roller, of course, I always respected the blues because that's the, the wellspring from which all is driven. But now it's uh, it's making sense. You know, it's it's really hitting home. And I've I, and what's great too is that nobody really wants to buy blues records anymore, so you can get them cheap when you go vinyl hunting. Ooh, and I've been picking up some just amazing records. So, yeah, man. I, I tell everybody, go back to the blues, especially now, man. This is this is a time of loss, and that's what the blues is about, loss. So I'll sing you my but hope in loss, you know. Here's here's a hit blues song. I'll sing it to you. See if you can guess what it is. Well, I'm going out to country. Do you want to go? I'm going out to country. Do you want to go? What about? Try this one. Yeah, uh, going up the country, of course. Yeah. Hey, listen. Mm -hmm. I can't. I can't recommend Can't Heat enough, man. They uh, uh, on this recent blues kick I've been on, Can't Heat. I have discovered, and my God, uh, the, the Grateful Dead for people who like music. Uh, Maybe I'll revisit Can't, can't Heat. My, my parents had a lot fantastic. of those records. Yeah, my so parents. So underrated. Yeah, they're so good. So I, good. you know who I heard yesterday? I heard a change is going to come. I heard a change is going to come by Baby Huey, and I loved it. <laughs> Not blues, but I loved it. I'm getting into like some different shit. Like people are playing Noi. Like I'm hearing Noi for the first time, and I'm like, oh, I like this, you know? Like, uh, right on, right on. I love MF Doom, but the more I hear MF Doom, the more I love MF Doom. You know, I just really think he's one of the best rappers I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Well, that's one of the, you know, it's your birthday, Nick, and so that's one of the great joys of getting older is just loving things ever more, you know, the having love deepen and ripen and expand yes. and grow is such a joy of age. So dig yes. on it, man. And uh, happy birthday again, Nick. That's, Thank you. Uh, I'm proud of you, man. Being happy loyal, but being open, be loyal, be open. That's the rule. That's right. Well, look, right. thank you for the birthday wishes. We're going to go do some birthday things and uh say hello to your lovely family and elizabeth right on and uh here i'm gonna stop recording Certainly now well thank you so much mike don't hang up quite yet but thank you All so right, much mike thank you nick and that was my talk with mike check him out dreamshatterer.bandcamp.com and his new york magazine article he talks about in the episode will be in the show notes if you read those. I don't know. I'm chill. I feel very croaky. So it's kind of a, a in and out intro and outro today, but uh, I'm doing the same thing as ever. Just staying in a home, going out in the sun. I don't know if there's flies everywhere where you are, but there are hundreds of thousands of flies when you go out. So all the more reason to self-isolate. And also because Many people in my immediate circle have a birthday within five days of each other. Uh, I had a Zoom with my mom and my sister and her boyfriend and my special friend and Gilda, my mom's best friend. So we had a big Zoom today and that was a lot of talking and I did some other talking earlier. So God, all that talking, jeez. If, you if you're a millionaire listening to this and you've already donated to various COVID charities, I would like to say that you can also support the podcast financially by going to patreon.com slash Nick Flanagan or ko-fi.com slash Nick Flanagan. But honestly, there's so many things you can do in this day and age that uh, are necessary with money. So if you don't want to give any money, that's fine. But I feel compelled to mention that. The world's softest sales pitch, so soft it would have been better 
had I not mentioned it. There will be an episode soon, and it's been really fun doing them fairly regularly since this whole thing. And if there's something you want me to talk about, or if you have a question, or you want to let me know what you thought of an episode, just write weekly podcast, that's W-E-A-K-L-Y podcast at gmail.com. You're sweet. You're doing a good job. Maybe try dancing for about 15 minutes at a random time. And scream on um, streets when no one's around. It's, it's quite cathartic to scream. Trust me, that's why my voice is like this. Thanks. Thank you to our, my producer, Andy Lloyd, as well. Shout out to you, Andy Lloyd. Bye. Oh, man. Nick. Oh, God. Flanagan. Oh, God. Weekly. Oh, man. Nick. Flanagan Weekly.